Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. This month's Memorial Day weekend is punctuated by the Indianapolis 500-mile race. As most of you probably already know, Albuquerque spawned the greatest family in the history of auto racing, the Unzers, Al, Al's brother Bobby, and Al's son, Al Jr. In 2005, I sat down with Al Unzer at the Unzer Museum. Al, who passed away in 2020, still holds the record for most wins at Indy. I hope you enjoy his interview. I would like to welcome Al Unzer Sr. to this program. Al, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure being here today, and I hope that uh, you and I can get along, and that way uh, we can make the audience very happy. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be able to do that, and for non-racing fans, and, and I kind of put myself in that category, even though I grew up in Indianapolis and sold programs at the qualifications and sold programs at the race, uh, for non-racing fans, uh, one of the remarkable things about you is your family. Because not only have you won four Indy 500s, and that's still as many as anyone's ever won, right? Right. There's three of us that have done it, A.J. Foyt, myself, and Rick Mears. Yeah, but so not only are, are you a record holder in that respect, but your older brother, Bobby, won three, I believe. Right. And your son, uh, Al Jr., won two Indy 500s. So I guess that sort of, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, it, uh, you know, that's one of the most remarkable feats in sporting history, not just racing history, but sporting history. And, and I guess the question is, is there something about uh, racing that's in your blood? Well, Steve, it's something that we enjoy very much. And, and uh, when you enjoy a sport or just like your business, you being an announcer, radio man, you, you love it, so you work very hard. And, and that's w the way we felt about racing. We, uh, we loved it, and it all turned out very well for us. You know, winning uh, the Unser family, winning nine Indy races is really something. It's more than any other family, but still it— it's an honor being from New Mexico to start with. But is there something, I mean, I assume all of you were natural-born racers, you know, <laughs> but, but, but you know, it, it, it's such a remarkable achievement. And I guess it's also part of what you did in, in, in founding the museum, because having been to the museum with you and looked around, it's not just Al Unser Sr.'s uh, memorabilia. It's stuff from the whole Unser family. Well, that it is, Steve. If, if people have been down there if they haven't been to the museum they ought to come because it's four generations of racing so it's it's starting out from my father and my two uncles and going to the grandkids now so it's uh really makes it interesting you know everybody when my my wife and i susan first started this project of the museum uh everybody thought it was just going to be about myself well you know, even though maybe you've had great accomplishments in your life, nobody wants to just study you. So to have four of us or four generations, it really made it uh, a pleasure putting it all together and a lot of work. But uh, we uh, love racing. We still do. I still go to all the races, and, and uh, I just wish that I could uh, back up 35 years and do it again. Um, I, I guess from a from a non-racer point of view, and I guess I you know the fastest I've ever gone is, is maybe a hundred or so in my car on a straightaway. 
the most incredible thing is how do you how do you do it for the first time? For example, <laughs> when you first got to Indianapolis, the very first time, whenever that was, what was it like for you to to, to try to go as fast as you could to qualify for that race? Well, Steve, the first time I ever went there was in 1964. I drove around the outside and saw these huge grandstands. And, you know, to watch it on TV or in the movies is one thing, but to actually be there and look at those huge grandstands, I says, man, I've never seen anything like this. And then I get in there and and, uh, look at the place. It was just amazing because it, it was something that I always wanted to do was race at Indianapolis and just be there one time. How long had you been racing when you first got to I started in 1957 here in Albuquerque and uh, then finally made it there. How do you make it there? What does it mean well, to make it there? Well, it's a hard process sometimes, Steve, of getting rides and, and uh, learning who to talk to and when to talk to them and and uh, what sponsors like you and just like you and and uh, it, it's um, it's a hard work in progress of of getting there and then you have to have the ability then once you get there to do the job and luckily everything turned out for me. Well, so were you an absolute natural the first time you got out there? You break a record. Well, I didn't break the record the first year. I, I got there in, in a car that uh, we brought from California, Frank Arcero was the owner, and it wouldn't go fast enough, and it made a long month. Of, how, how fast is not fast Well, enough? in those days, we had to reach uh, 152 mile an hour to make the race. And that doesn't sound like it's very fast, but back in 1965... That was very quick, you know, at an average speed around the speedway. So, And how quick was the car running? Well, down the straightaway, you run, even back then, you ran uh, about 225, 215 to 225 mile an hour down the straightaways. And when you ask earlier, how does that feel? You know, it's amazing how when you come down those long straightaways and it looks like you're in a tunnel. And you know at the end of that tunnel that the road turns left. And you better have things handling well to be able to do that. Because Indy is an oval and you're all left turns. Yep, that it is. And if you make a mistake, you slide and hit the wall, spin and hit the wall. And 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 you're aware of that. You're very much aware that if you make a mistake, it's... Oh, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You you know that because you've seen... You know, over the years of your learning how to race, you've you've seen wrecks there or on TV or, you know, on on uh, the movies. So, you know, it's going to hurt, you know, because even the G-forces, when we used to hit back there, if you hit it like 210 mile an hour, you used to pull, you know, over 200 Gs. All right, so 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 now you're trying to qualify the first time you're there, and you can't get your car to go fast yeah, enough. Yeah, couldn't so we'll, get it going fast enough, and and I was there was four days of qualifying back then, and I was down to the last day of Sunday, and uh, we took a gamble, and and we used to use nitrous, uh, nitro, uh, not nitrous, but nitro. It's a fuel mixture that goes into the fuel tank that makes horsepower. So it was legal back then, and and, uh, Louis, uh, my brother, was my chief mechanic. So we dumped about uh, 
40% of nitro in there. And, of course, going down the straight area, the engine just ignited, you know, blew up. The thing uh, didn't make it. So I thought I was finished. I was in my garage, and I was very sad because when you go back to Indianapolis and you miss the race or something happens, it makes you very, very, you know, unhappy and sad. And in walks A.J. Foyt into my garage back and, and, there. And A.J. Foyt is a legendary yes, racetrack. Yes, yes. He'd already won the race. And he looked down at me and he says, uh, I got a second car. You want to you wanna qualify it? Try qualifying it? And I, he says, if you do, come over to my shop. Think Why of, you? Why would he pick you? You know, I don't know, Steve. <laughs> That's one of those deals of being in the right place at the right time. And I guess Foyt did think that I had the talent. Mm -hmm. So that's what I meant earlier about how much talent you have and, and how sometimes it, it takes certain breaks or, or, you know, good things happening to you to have somebody recognize you. So he says, come over to my shop if you, if you want to do it. Well, he walked out. There was no brainer for you, right? Oh, I followed him. I mean, I didn't have to think about it. Let's don't kid each other. I walked right out the door, and, then, you know, if he'd have stopped, I'd have hit him because I was that close to him. And he gets over there, and he explains what I'm going to do and how we're going to do it. And, and So what's uh, he telling you about how to, how oh, to run the car? that he's going to take first. He told me he was going to take the car out mm -hmm. and show me that it was a safe car. And uh, so he took it out, and he run about 154 mile an hour, 53. So that's plenty to make. It. Oh yeah. So I come in, and then he puts me in it, and I run 10 laps in it, and got up to about 149. So you're not there yet. Oh, I'm not there yet. But we'll go back in the garage area, and we're sitting there, and I'll never forget it. We're sitting there, and and. Uh, I'm thinking very deeply, and, and uh, he's talking to the mechanics, and he's making a couple of little adjustments on the car, and he looks over at me, and he says, you ready to qualify? And I says, you got to be joking. I never in my life thought I'd, you know, do it that quick. I just have 10 laps in the car. And I looked at him, and what am I going to say? I says, You can't uh, say no. Yeah, I says, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was shook, and I mean... My stomach went in every direction. I thought I was going to, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. So he rolls that car out of the garage and up towards the, the front we went to the to the track. And I'm walking along and I, you know, I, honestly, even today, I don't remember those footsteps of going up there because my mind was so involved in thinking, boy, this is my chance, this is everything in other words you you just don't get that kind of opportunity very many times in your life by somebody like Foyt coming and picking you up because I was going to miss the race there was I was out of cars the engine was blowed in the car I went back there with and there just wasn't anything left so I go out there and and uh, we qualified to make a long story short we qualified at 152 mile an hour so it was enough to make the race. I started 29th. So how did you, what are you, what's going on in your mind to get from 149, I think you said, to 152? I, I mean, how do you, are you saying, look, you know, I got to put the pedal to the metal, or is it that simple, or is it in those you're going days, through the turns a little yeah. different? Or In those days, Steve, we didn't have radios like they do today, two-way uh -huh. communications. 
it just have signboards. So I'd come around and they'd hold up a sign, you know, 152, you know, or 151 and a half, 152. And I kept picking it up every lap. And the last lap I ran was was uh, almost 154 mile an hour, something like that. And and so that gave me 152 mile an hour average. So you were learning laps. as you as you as you as you drove. Yeah, and and so he kept, you know, you you can tell when you used to be able to come down the front straightaway, they were standing out on the pit wall, and if they were excited, you know, waving you, you knew that you were in the ballpark. So, so the last lap when I, you know, came out of uh, turn four, they were all just jumping up and down, Foyt and Louis, my brother, and, and uh, uh, my father was standing there. And uh, we got the checkered flag, and I said, man, I can't believe I, you know, this is a dream come true. If you just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas, and I'm Stephen Spitz. We're listening back to an interview I did with Al Unser at the Unser Racing Museum in 2005. Al still holds the record for most wins at Indy, and the Unzer family is still the most successful family ever to race at Indy. Al, I'd like to skip forward because we've, uh, to 1971. And I picked 1971 because when I visited the racing museum with you, I saw that 1971 car that's kind of featured uh, in the museum. And, I'm, uh, and I believe you won the race in 70, and you're coming back in 71, and, and you're trying to become a two- Trying to win two in a row, and that that's not something that very many people have ever done, right? No, it isn't, Steve. It, it's something that there's been very few drivers. I think there's only three or four of us that have, have done it. Uh, so it, it uh, to come back to the racetrack from, from the year before winning that race, uh, we thought that we really had an advantage. And we get to the racetrack. Who's track. we, by the way? Who's, the what's that race team. team uh, when I talk about we, it's my race team and not mine. I was driving for Vel Melitich and Parnelli Jones was my car owner. And he's a famous race Parnelli car Parnelli had won there in 64 or 63, mm-hmm. something like that. So it was 63, yeah. And uh, so, you know, it, it was uh, an honor running for them and uh, because of all the prestige and all that. But we came back from winning in 70. We get there in 71, and we thought we'd, you know, have an advantage. Well, right away we saw that we didn't. There was a team, uh, McLaren, they called it the McLaren team, uh, that... Uh, had us outclassed. They had a better race car. They had built a better, faster race car than what we had. How much faster? Well, it was about three mile an hour faster. So over uh, five hundred miles. Oh, that's a bunch. That's a lot. That's, <laughs> that's a bunch. That's a lot to make yes. up. So you know, it it. it Where'd you qualify, dropped, Al? For I saying? qualified third quick uh-huh. or fourth quick. I'm uh-huh. sorry, fourth quick. I was on the second row. A green flag drops, and all of a sudden, sometimes. You know, they kind of just kind of came back to me. In other words, it showed that we had a better race car during the race. And uh, I had to run a hard race that day. Now, I'm it not was, sure I quite – you mean you mean you as you were running the race, you were actually doing better than you thought you were going to do What we thought we would, yes. Uh-huh. Because we, you know, in 71, I run a hard race all day. In 70, 
when I talked like that, 70 was comparably a very easy race because I led 190 laps out of 200, see. And that and, was your first uh, win. Yes, we did what we wanted to do. But uh, in 71, it wasn't that easy. I had to run the car very, very hard all day. And I, we were surprised that it that it lasted running a car, you know, I run Do you have a, a sense of, of how the car is doing when you're, when you're running, how, 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 how whether it's going to make it or well, not? Well, yes, you do, Steve. You, you, as the month progresses towards the race day, you learn how to set the car. And uh, with the chief mechanic of George McNaughty that I had at that time and the car owners, Bell and Parnelli Jones, between us, we were able to pick out a good race setup, a setup that I could run all day, we figured, and, and be very competitive. But we didn't know how competitive we would be against the McLaren's cars. So, so how were you doing against the McLaren? Well, when as the race progressed, I led quite a bit of it. I, you know, but I was up front all the time. And then you Donahue, mean up among the leaders? Yes, in the first three or four. Mm-hmm. On the same lap? On the same lap, yeah. And uh, then uh, Peter Refson was running one of the McLarens. Donahue fell out, Mark Donahue. He had a problem. And Peter Refson could out, actually outrun me in the, in the McLaren. But with the help of, of a good team and the good Lord, we were able to kind of outthink him and, and uh, beat him on the racetrack. How'd and you do that? It just, it, it, I don't know. I wish I could answer <laughs> that question for you. They said, I'd be pretty smart, you know. <laughs> but really, it, it uh, I think with the experience that I had. But he's, ra- he's faster than you, and you've got to somehow beat him. Yes, I So that doesn't seem possible. Him. It sounds like it, but he made a lot of uh, mistakes in the pits, Mm-hmm. How he entered the pits, how he exited the pits, and during the yellow flags, he made several mistakes of going too slow. So it was enough to give me an advantage for the end of the race. And and uh, how we close would, was the end of the race? Oh, he was a half a lap back, but that's too close. You know, if it takes an inch, that's too close. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It it uh, you don't really like being you know, right at the mercy of somebody that you know can outrun you and you only, you know, have him by a fourth of a lap or a half a lap. Well, I'd like to skip to the, to, now you're a three-time winner and you're coming back, Alan, you're you're 46 or 47 years old and you're trying to win your fourth, but you don't even have a car. And, And I wondered if you could tell us how it came about that you got a car and how you did in the race that I think you know I'm talking about. I think it was the 87 race. Yeah. Steve, racing is, is, is it's not easy. There's a lot of ups and there's a lot of downs. And uh, even though that I was a three-time winner, through the process of, of my age, of being in the late 40s, and uh, I was with Roger Penske, for several years, and then uh, once you're with a leading team, you know what it takes to win. You, you basically can sit there and say, well, I need this advantage, this advantage, and all these things in line, and then maybe you have a good chance of, of finishing up front and try to win a race. And uh, Roger uh, had another deal come along. I was going to run for him in 87, 
And early in, well, the late of 86, he called me up and said that, that he'd been offered a very good sponsorship and they wanted Danny Ungaius to run the car. So that left me without a ride. And so I decided when I went back to Indianapolis that I would look for a ride, a good ride. I had probably five to eight offers in cars to run, and I didn't think they were capable of winning. And you didn't want to run if you couldn't win? No, if, if you don't, you know, once you learn how to win, you don't want to go back, you know, and, and be an also run, see? And so you had to be very particular. And so uh, when uh, things were down, for the first weekend the qualifying was over, I didn't have a ride. I didn't, there just wasn't anything that I wanted, and I was offered quite a few rides. And uh, my son, Al Jr., didn't get qualified the first weekend. So I says, well, I'm going to stay here. I was going to come home back to Albuquerque after the first weekend of qualifying if I didn't have a ride. Because the second weekend of qualifying usually are all second-rate cars. You just usually never come up with a front-running team that's capable of winning at the Indianapolis 500. So I says, well, I'm going to stay here this week and see if I can help my son. So Al's running Monday and Tuesday out there, and I'm out there trying to help him. He's gaining, and I get a phone call from Roger Penske, and he said they won't release Danny Ungaius because he crashed uh, the first week. And of, he was unable to run, of, the, run yeah. the car. He, they wouldn't let him run. And right. the car was wrecked too, right? They wrecked very badly, yeah. They totaled it. So Roger called me up, and he says, we have an 86 March. Last year's model? That was in Pennsylvania in a hotel in a showroom. He says, it's the car that Rick Mears ran last year. He says, it's a very good car. Uh, it'll have a Cosworth in it. And at that time, the new Chevy engines, the Indy Chevys were running and very strong, stronger motors, horsepower-wise. See? So I sat there and I, he says, I'd like to have you run the car for me if you want to do it. And it doesn't take two seconds to make that decision. That was another A.J. Foyt type decision. That's right. Very definitely. You just hit it right exact. I mean, you just don't turn down good offers on a good team. Say. So I said, yeah. So I had to qualify the second weekend, and I think I qualified. Uh, they finally got the car there, went back to Pennsylvania, got it out of a hotel, and brought it there and put a motor in it. And I went out Thursday, and then I qualified Saturday. And I qualified 20th because it's the second weekend to qualify. So how do you win a race when you qualify 20th? <laughs> <clears throat> Steve, you, you, I think that you try to put the best effort you can towards running up front. In other words, there wasn't any time I sat there and said I was going to win. I thought in my mind that I had a very good chance of running up front, and then at the end of the race, I would take what I could get whether it's first, third, second, whatever, say. And you hope, and I think I always went into all my races like that, that you never know you're going to win for sure. There isn't any sure days. The surest of my four wins was probably 1970, the first year. We knew if we finished, we would win the race. But you first have to finish. If you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas, and I'm Steven Spitz. We're listening back to an interview I did with racing legend 
Al Unzer in 2005. Al is still the all-time record holder at Indy, and the dirt road where the racing shop was originally located is now named Unzer Boulevard. And Al, I'd like to just jump to one final thing. We've been talking about the Indy car races, and the, and the Indy, there's also an Indy kind of racing league, and there's national championships, and there's an incredible story, really, of you trying to win the national championship. I believe it was two years before this 1987 race that we're just uh, talking about, and, and the incredible <laughs> story is it's coming, it comes down to the very last race of the season, and your primary competitor is no one other than your son, Al Jr. Yeah, that it was. It was in 1985. We went, we'd run the season, and I was with Roger Penske at that time. Uh, so we go down to the last race, and there's only two points difference. There's a whole point. bunch of races that make up the national oh, championship. Oh, yeah, so 16 of them. 16. Yeah. So we go down to the last race, and it's up to Al and I, who nobody else could beat us. Now, you'd raced against your brother, Bobby, more than once, right? Oh, my whole life, Your yes. whole life, right? <laughs> Starting when he was your older brother. Yes. <laughs> what was it like to race against your son? Steve, it was, a, it was a different feeling. Let me tell you, running against your brother is one thing. But when you go running against your, your own kids, male or female, there's a different feeling, you know, when, when Al first came into racing, I says, well, there won't be anything to it. Everybody asked me, you know, you're going to have a hard time running against your son? I said, no, not really, because I raced against my brother for years. And uh, when I first started running, running against him, I knew that it was quite different. And then to go down to the championship, the last race, and I couldn't say that it was Al Unser Jr., my son. Anytime they interviewed me or did anything, they said, are you going to win? Who do you have to beat to win the championship? I would say I have to beat the Domino Pizza car. And I says, I hate Domino Pizza, which I don't. I eat it. <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't say I was running against my son because it was just, it gives you too many feelings, you know, on, on you know. And when coming down for the for the last part of the race. Yeah, it's not only the last race of the, uh, yeah, for the, the championship, year, but yeah. it's the actual last part of the race where it, it all, it all it, comes it's down very to. much the last few laps, and there was five laps to go or something like that, and Roger Pinsky comes over my radio and says, you have to pass Dano Mar Danny Marino. And, uh, where was he running at he that was time? Running, uh, Al was running second, he was running third, I was running fourth. So I pushed the button. I says, no problem. I will. How do you do I mean, how do you pass somebody that doesn't want to be passed? You know, it's, it's amazing. What I did is I followed him for about two laps, and I could see his weak points on the racetrack. And then I just picked his weakest corner, and I went around him. And then I had to make sure that I kept him behind me because he didn't want to lose a position. And he would, if he crashed me, then I would lose regardless, see. So I had to be very careful when I passed him. And then I had to know within myself that I could outrun him and, and put him distant back so he couldn't get back to me. So, so what was it like then when you, when you, you must hook up with your son right after the race? What well, was that when like? we got the checkered flag, Steve, is when it hit me, you know, that 
that I had taken something away from my son that I could have given him very easy because I didn't have to pass that guy. But, but you're too much of a competitor not well, to. Well, yes. I mean, I, I, I owe it to my team. I owe it to my sponsors. And I owe it to myself. I'm very sorry to say we're out of time. We've been listening back to an interview I conducted with racing legend Al Unser, who passed away in 2020. I'm Stephen Spitz, and you are listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Thanks to my producers, Gustafoya and Tristan Klum. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.